0: Welcome to the Microbials Matter podcast, where microbials matter. Here's your host, Dr. Nate Haas, veterinarian and microbiologist for over 15 years. He is the director of Applied Research and Technical Services. He brings his knowledge to BioVet, who has over 30 years of researching and developing products that support digestion and overall health in livestock. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Micro Wheels Matter because you know what they really do matter, don't they, Dr. Haas? They do. They, sure they do. do. So joining us now, I think in a full time capacity here on this yep. podcast is is Dr. Haas. And last time we did speak to your qualifications to being on this podcast, so you're definitely no stranger to you know the dairy industry, the livestock industry, and definitely your role as a microbiologist, veterinarian, researcher teacher, (laughs) you know, the words we can use kind of describe you. But today, you know, it's no secret at this point, we're in the upper Midwest, but weather, gosh, you know, it just keeps playing this factor. We talked about it with feedstuffs and we talked about it with heat stress. So today, this time of year for us, the temperatures are dropping and we start to question um, a little bit more about cold stress. And, And, you know, really cold stress is very different kind of animal in a lot of ways from heat stress. So it definitely is. You know, today, let's start with, you know, maybe the the obvious thing here. What exactly is cold stress? Sure. And how do you start to identify that? Whether it's, you know, I think in our bigger livestock we're maybe not as concerned with cold stress, but you know, what are some of those telltale signs you start to see? What are the things that make you start to worry a little bit yeah. when the temperatures start to drop?
1: Yeah. Uh, like you said, we have the, the best of both worlds here, right? We, get that, <laughs> we do. That crazy hot, humid summers and then the really cold winters. And then you have a couple of really nice periods of time in the spring and the fall. The but joke
0: is summer was, you know, all of two days this ex- exactly, year. Yes.
1: Exactly. And so I, I can tell you, you know, as a as a veterinarian, when I was studying to become a vet, you know, one thing we always heard about was, you know, cattle. They hate the heat, but boy, they really love the cold. You know, and that was something that's kind of beat into us. And, and right. as you're looking into that, that's not exactly true. They, they definitely have, maybe, exactly. But. They definitely have the ability to compensate for cooler temperatures, but there definitely is stress that's involved as well. So if you want to define what cold stress is, so every animal, and, we, and you, you kind of started this correctly, is that, you know, our adults are going to be a lot different than our newborns, mm-hmm. right? Which makes sense. It yeah. just doesn't matter what animal you're talking about. And so each of these animals have kind of a pre-programmed what we call thermal neutral zone. It's just a fancy term for saying when are they comfortable and when are they not expending energy to heat themselves up if it's too cold or to cool themselves off if it's Mm -hmm. too hot. So if you're above that thermal neutral zone, you're under heat stress. If you're below it, you're under cold stress. And so focusing on cold stress, you know, and it really depends on the conditions of the animal as well. So sure. a day oh, like yeah. today. Oh, yeah. And so when you get to that lower critical threshold, that's that lower temperature. And, and for an animal that is poorly conditioned, that may be about 60 degrees. An animal sure. that's an adult that has a nice thick hair coat, it's dry, it's under nice body condition. We like to say they're kind of in that mid-range body condition. A
0: nice that's 3.25, 3.5, exactly, maybe. Five or six
1: in a beef world, you yeah. know, you have to go to the nine-point scale there. They can handle, um, their actual lower critical threshold has been documented to be about 18 degrees, so much colder than where we're at right now, as long as they're dry and as long as they have that hair coat. So once they get lower than that, basically what they're doing is they're expending that energy, that maintenance energy that they need just to run their regular physiologic, their body processes. And so they're not able to use that energy for that process. They have to use that energy to shiver and to Metabolize and produce heat from the digestive process just to get their body temperatures up to where they can maintain their body temperatures without having to get to that point where they, they actually experience hypothermia. So that's right. what cold stress is, is they get to that point where their respiratory rate has to increase and their heart rate increases because they're trying to pump more blood throughout the body. Metabolism mm-hmm. is going to increase. Where cattle make their heat is through metabolism. So oh, breaking yeah. down that feed that they're taking in that's a heat. Uh, it's called an exothermic process, right? So it produces heat. So they're going to increase their eating when they get cold, when they're under cold stress, mild cold stress, because they're trying to increase metabolism. They're also trying to increase their fat layers in, in their body as well. And
0: gain a little weight. Yes. Exactly.
1: And, and then the last thing is they'll put on that, that long hair coat, right? So those are the three things they can do to adapt to cold. Now, we'll run into, I'm sure, during this conversation, more abrupt changes that occur, and that's really the problems that we run into because cattle, as you know, like consistency.
0: They're not big on surprises. It's true. They're not. So those
1: those fall days where we have, you know, 50, 60, 70-degree days, and it drops down to maybe the low 40s or even 30s at night – those are kind of hard on cattle, right? They like it consistent. Mm-hmm. And so if we have a nice gradual, uh, and, and this year has actually been kind of nice this way, a little bit of a gradual decrease in temperatures. We haven't had any, you know, crazy, crazy cold here yet, at least where we're at. They have the ability to acclimate and they have the ability to grow right. that hair coat. They have the ability to throw that fat on their bodies to insulate their bodies. They have that ability to increase their intakes, to increase metabolism, to increase that heat production. So that's how they really, that, that's that's how they combat it. Calves, are a little bit different.
0: Man, their energy needs, as we've already discussed, are very high.
1: Exactly. Very they're high. Very, very trying high. Trying to
0: crow, trying to get established. And so for them to try and even utilize even more energy is exactly. probably like climbing a mountain a little bit.
1: Exactly. And they don't have the reserves that adults have. No. So published statistics will tell you that calves usually have 2 to 4% body fat, where cattle are going to be in the 10 to 20 depending on mm-hmm. the condition that they're in. So they don't have the fat to burn. And they have a huge surface area for their body size. So they evaporatively cool much quicker than mm-hmm. what adult cattle will. And as you know, anybody who has children, you know that newborn babies don't thermoregulate the way that they need to. That's why we no. swaddle them well, up, we, and we get them warm, and right. same thing goes with calves. And so we really have to kind of diversify how we deal with cold stress based on, one, the, the stage of production that these animals are in. So mm-hmm. newborns versus, you know, weanlings versus yearlings versus adults. Also, you have to think about the different way we raise animals. So the dairy world and the beef world are going to run into two completely different different ways on how we deal with cold stress.
0: Absolutely. So we've kind of locked in what what cold stress is, right? We get to a point where we have to produce more heat to maintain the body. How do we know cold stress is starting to set in? Mm -hmm. And how quickly can that start to have maybe more detrimental effects? Understanding that it's all temperature probably driven on some level, but... You know, is heat stress, we know, can set in quite quickly. Yep. Cold stress, you know, it seems that that one may okay. linger longer, potentially.
1: Yeah. You know, we can break it up into acute versus chronic, like mm-hmm. with diseases, too. So if you have an automatic, you know, drop down to zero degrees and it's ice, you know, you have sleet and ice, and, and those animals are obviously going to exhibit acute cold stress but you're right the more insidious is kind of that longer lasting you know over a couple month period of time and and we see then the decrease in in body resources and things like that so the first signs we're going to see in in, let's say an animal that's um, a calf for instance that's Mm -hmm. that's exhibiting cold stress because we can handle those oftentimes a little bit easier we can we can actually you know manually handle them and and assess them is again their heart rate's going to oftentimes increase they're trying to kick more blood throughout their body. And, right. and one thing the body is going to do to try to compensate for that cold is it's going to try to shunt some of that blood from the outside of the body towards the inside of the body. Really, mm-hmm. the, the animal's job is to keep the vital organs running. It doesn't necessarily matter if its ears are still intact or if there's right. a, a teat or something like that on an udder. Um, although that's really important, um, that animal will sacrifice those for the heart, the liver, the brain, sure. those vital organs. So oftentimes these animals will feel very cold on the outside, and so they're shunting that blood. So the the, the cardiovascular system is trying to compensate for that. So the heart rate increases, and because mm-hmm. the heart rate increases, respiratory rates can oftentimes increase too. Sure. And along with that, metabolism is going to increase. The chronic things, the longer lasting, what we call environmental stress. And again, I, I guess I should go back to some things we'll see for those acute types of hypothermia would be like a calf that's born in a wet cold environment.
0: Uh, yeah, not what we want. Not exactly. ideal. Exactly. Not it's ideal. It's
1: wet from all of the, uh, you know, the, the fluids that is bathed right. in while inside mom. Oftentimes it's calved into a colder area that's a wet mm-hmm. area as well. And immediately, if those animals can't get dried off, if they can't get into a warmer environment, can't get their food, then they're going to likely exhibit some stress. If not, get to the point where they can even succumb to that. Right. But then going back to the kind of longer lasting, you think of cows, for instance, right? If I'm a, mm-hmm. If I'm a gestating and lactating cow... The thought has always been that cold stress, you know, you're going to see that in the bulk tank. You're going to see a decrease in milk production. But the research actually shows you that's not the case. Oh, Um, okay. Cattle will sacrifice their body condition at the expense of keeping the milk going and keeping metabolism going. So what you'll see on those animals is a decrease in body condition. And, and that's where it takes farm, – farmers are really good at judging body condition, but oftentimes they don't do it formally. Mm. Maybe just take a quick glance around their, you know, their I mean, pen.
0: That's probably a fair assessment, yep. yeah.
1: Glance around their pen, they look and say, okay, they, they look pretty good, right? One thing I always stress is unless you have some data there, it's really hard to determine if you're slipping one way or another.
0: It tr- yes, true.
1: And, and so my recommendation is you know to look at these animals every single day and, and to try to at least make somewhat of an objective assessment of what the body condition of those animals are. Mm -hmm. Once you start to see things start to slide a little bit, and maybe you see it in the refusals that you're going to see in your bunk, maybe you're going to see that in the actual body condition of those animals, that's the kind of insidious problem that we run into with cold stress because not only are you losing weight, but now you have to catch up for that later on. And the way that you catch up for that is obviously increased intakes. And oftentimes they're not able to do that adequately to get up to a good body condition for the next lactation.
0: Well, and as we've already talked about in previous episodes, now you're setting yourself up for some acidosis, exactly, which is just not cool. So go back and check out that episode if you get a chance. <laughs> we learned that, you know, really acidosis can affect probably does affect all animals at some point and it's just Mm -hmm. so hard to detect till it's become a bigger issue or it's 90 days later but to this point about losing weight for a minute um you got cows like six weeks out from calving, they're really milking, so they're already losing weight. Mm-hmm. In in your estimation, who loses the weight the fastest if they're in a chronic yep. cold state scenario? Is it those cows that are, are hitting peak production? Are they really, really dropping it fast now? Or is it is it our red heifers? Who do yeah. you see kind of suffering the most in that weight loss scenario if we're not providing enough energy? Yep.
1: So so we know that we know that those animals that are in peak production because they're already metabolically stressed tip top right are going to oftentimes um, see some of those major weight losses but what we see as far as the the category of animals that's really precarious with cold stress are those ones that are in that last trimester so we know that that's a problem um, in that third trimester animal and and so you know we can think about right now you know if we're in, in early winter here not quite winter but close enough we're kind of getting to that point in some of our beef herds, right? As these animals yep. are going to start calving in, you know, March, April, mm-hmm. we're getting close to that beginning of that third trimester, right when cold stress when gets is going cold, to get cold. Yep. Yep. And, and oftentimes what we're going to see in those cases are not only the weight loss that could occur then because now they're going through in, in the dairy world, at least a transition from right. lactating to dry. Yeah. Right. So they're getting different feed stuffs as well. So they're going through a little bit of different change in their ration, which is always problematic with any animal. When you change a ration, if you do it, abruptly. It's problematic Mm -hmm. if you gradually do it. They they tend to do a little bit better. So they're going through that. They're going through that period of time when the calf is starting to demand most of what they... Yeah, the
0: the calf's growing.
1: Exactly. And so those last couple weeks of gestation, that's what occurs. And then you run into the secondary effects after calving. So uh, we do know that cold stress cows tend to have more dystocias, more difficult Mm -hmm. birthings than, than other cows. We know that calves born from dystocia tend to not be thriving calves. Right, they
0: uh, suffer a little more. Yeah. Exactly,
1: they tend not to nurse the way that they should. If you're In the beef world, that becomes extremely problematic. In the mm-hmm. dairy world, we oftentimes can manage that. But they do tend to have problems with that calving process, and they tend to be a little bit, uh, from almost a central nervous system standpoint, a little bit slower to get up and going, standing and mm-hmm. nursing.
0: Yeah, understandably.
1: And we also know those cows don't produce as good Colostrum, like right. anywhere else, right? Um, if, if they're not eating the way they need to for whatever reason and they're not metabolizing the feed that they need to or they're taking all this energy that's going into, again, maintenance, gestation in this case, if it's a heifer, they're still growing, right? So oh, yeah. you're, you're taking that energy that's utilized for those purposes and now you're using it just to burn off um, as a way to produce heat. Now that energy and, and because they're not eating as well, they're not getting as much protein and so the colostrum can suffer too. So it's a it's a insidious cycle because those calves then now are not getting prepared for their really stressful period of time, which yeah. is his first couple of weeks of life. For as that same the reason, first
0: thirty days, exactly. it's our it's our pivotal time frame. So you know, as temperatures drops, how often should we? You you've made the comment about daily checking body conditions. Which can get a little tricky with with hair sometimes, yep. but overall, you know, how often should be we, we consciously be kind of seeking out those signs of mm-hmm. cold stress in the herd or um, in the pasture wherever they are? You know, when we start to see those signs, is our only response to add more feed, or what makes the most sense? Because again, sure. we just talked about how sometimes pushing the feed can lead to acidosis. So yep. we're, we're, we have that dance we're gonna yep. we're gonna do.
1: So. Yep. So our farmers are the are the best prognosticators out there as far as weather goes, right? We're always talking oh, yeah. weather. Every time out on a farm, regardless what the con the context of our visit is, it's weather.
0: Uh, weather and markets, somewhere, right?
1: Yep, Weather and markets, and oftentimes there's a correlation there, right? There always is. So we know that our producers are are keenly aware of when the temperatures are going to change because it makes a a really important um, it's mm-hmm. a real important deal for them, right? So. You know, it's kind of dependent on the system as well. So we're talking about our dairy cows, you know, and, and dairy calves. We're going to see those animals every single day, right? So at right. the very minimum, when you're dealing with those type of systems, it has to be daily because you're going to see those animals daily. And and again, most of our dairy cows, although we do have a fair number of those that are outside a little bit more than than traditional in the dairy area. Oftentimes, these animals are going to be indoors. They're oftentimes going to be in a little more shelter. So it's a little right. bit less yeah. important, honestly, to look at those animals and say, okay, this animal is going through this stress period right now. It's kind of a holistic type approach. Yes. And the calves the same way. I'm going to feed them a couple times a day. We have a good opportunity mm-hmm. to see them and make sure that they're not, you know, going through undue stress events. In the beef world, it becomes a little bit more tricky. And so Absolutely. the answer to that question is, is as much as possible, but that's not realistic in many no, cases. Probably so. probably not. Oftentimes what we're doing is kind of tailoring it based on the weather conditions that are out there. I know a storm is on the forecast or a potential for drop in temperatures. I'm going to make sure that those animals have the feed that they need. I'm going to make sure that those animals have the shelter that they need. Right. And beef shelter is not necessarily a free stall or a standing building. No, no, a little more
0: uh, rugged. A little more
1: rugged and honestly, even just providing windbreaks for those animals, Mm -hmm. getting them out of the wind. Again, cattle have no problem. A dry Well-conditioned beef cow has no problem surviving at 20 degrees, 18 degrees, even a little bit lower in certain situations as long as they're not wet and as long as they're not windy. Feed intakes... Are going to be a, a no-brainer though. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of different calculations that you can make, and none of these are super fancy and they're not super te- technical. But you can think about them as there's one calculation that's used a lot. Where below 32 degrees, you take the temperature, and for every degree below that, you can just make an estimation about a one percent increase in feed intake. So 32 to 22, if it's 22 at, at you know sometime during that day, you can anticipate maybe 10 percent increase in the amount sure. of feed that's needed. Yep. Yeah. If it's wet, you have to double that. So that's a 2% uh, increase. So that 32 to 22, even though 22 is well within that thermal neutral zone for adult animals, you're increasing their intakes likely to 20%. Wow. And so one way we have to have to kind of assess this, again, it's different in the beef and dairy world, but we like to look at refusals in, mm-hmm. in the dairy world. We like to see what's left in the bunk after they're fed. And those animals will increase that. So we don't want a slick bunk usually in those situations. No, we no. want to, especially when you're dealing with this is because what you want to do is have enough feed there that those animals can at least self-select that they're going to go and eat, they're going to go in and increase that heat that's produced um, without being limited by that. So feed intake is extremely, extremely important. When you deal with, with calves, just keeping them warm is the biggest thing. So I always say deep and dry when yes, it comes to bedding. Big right? bedding packs, Exactly. very helpful. You, you, don't want, you, know, you want to be able to get them so they can nestle in. The, think of straw and think of corn stover or anything that mm-hmm. you're using for bedding, kind of like hair, right? We want to have air pockets in between there because that's insulatory. We want it dry. You don't want it caked on. Just like the hair coat of an animal. You want that nice and fluffy mm-hmm. because that air is really what's insulating that body. If it's slicked down or if there's mud or feces or other debris that's kind of caking down that air, the insulation capacity no is completely good. It's gone. It's useless. Exactly. Yeah. It's completely useless. You know, the same thing goes with calves when you're talking about calf coats, and I think we have to talk about that because that's an important we thing. We do. We do. And so calf jackets are... For those of you who have never used them before, they're literally just jackets that go over the back side of the calf. They,
0: they're kind of cute, if you ask me. Yep. But yes. And now they but even effective. have.
1: They're very effective, and they can be. They can be very effective. They can be detrimental if you don't work with them properly. If they're too wet. Yep. And they they even make earmuffs for calves. They now do. Too, right? They so, do. Yeah. So you can uh, get those to kind of pre- prevent you know potential tips, frostbiting, or, or anything like that. But when it comes to calf jackets, there's a couple of rules of thumb for calf jackets too. Usually by the time those calves are at least at the point where the rumen is pretty much functioning, Mm -hmm. and we usually count that as about three weeks of age, about 21 days. Prior to that, since the rumen really isn't working that well, they're not producing all that heat. They really aren't, no. And so the rule of thumb is if the ground's frozen and the calf is less than 21 days of age, that a calf jacket is a good idea to have. There's another rule out there, which I kind of like as well. It's called the rule of 90s. And so that's if you take the high temperature of the day and you take the low temperature at night and you add them together, and if they're less than 90 degrees, then that calf could have a calf jacket on. So that would be if you're, you know, if it's forty degrees during the day and it's thirty degrees at night, that's seventy. That doesn't reach your ninety. And so you'd have calf jackets on those animals to help them. Again, only up until they're able to really to generate some heat themselves. Yeah. So you gotta be careful that they're not sweating underneath it because obviously that's gonna cool them off that wet that's there. And then it gets matted down. So clean, dry calf jackets are really good options for most of, of the winters when you're in these temperatures where you're below freezing.
0: So just to kind of follow up here, when you say a 1% increase below
1: 32 degrees,
0: is that kind of across ages?
1: That's a very general, that's a generalization that you can deal with there. So our calves, mm -hmm. our little calves
0: probably going to need a little more help. Exactly.
1: And And so, you know, very typically around here is when we start really recommending. And actually, I don't recommend it even now. I recommended about a month ago. And that Mm -hmm. is to start increasing the intakes of their liquid feeds. So a very typical feeding regimen would be, you know, two quarts twice a day. That's kind of the old-fashioned way that we've dealt with that. And I think we would argue that that's probably not necessarily adequate in many cases. As
0: as we have discussed, yes, in in previous podcasts, that that might be not quite starvation diet, but it's hard to, it's a maintenance
1: diet. It's it's very hard to to gain weight weight on that type of a diet. And Dr. Zimmer has talked about that before, and he's very right. You know, if we could, you know, every farm just has a bunch of two-quart or two-liter bottles around right so getting larger bottles is is sometimes just the only thing that's between you know giving that animal more nutrition and taking them past that just maintenance diet definitely increasing that volume is something we recommend Mm -hmm. and so i would say at a bare minimum we'd like to get at least six quarts of of milk and milk replacer into those animals and even more if possible that's a bare minimum and and those calculations will tell you that at about 20 degrees that extra two quarts is enough to to just heat that animal up to the point where they're not taking weight off their body. If it goes lower than that, that's not even going to be adequate enough. So what we need to do is make sure that we stay away from kind of those old those old kind of negative practices of just adding a little bit more milk replacer to that bottle. We want to keep the concentration the same because, like we just mentioned, cattle-like consistency.
0: They do. So if, you, do.
1: if you're if you used to drinking um, your milk or milk replacer at a certain concentration and now it's extra concentrated just because you think, okay, I'm going to give a little more of the, the powder, for instance, into this, that can cause some other problems, too, including some abomasal issues, some bloat, and also can cause exacerbation of scours, too. Yes. So, yes. so that's really important to think about is, is increasing that volume. My recommendation is, and a lot of people will go ahead and they'll just go out, and instead of giving two in the morning, two quarts in the morning, if they're under that old regimen, they'll just go ahead and give three in the morning and three in the afternoon. My ideal is to actually incorporate a third feeding.
0: Third, three times a day. Yep,
1: yeah. Yep. At, at, and again, at the minimum. Another thing we've seen is that feeding those animals a little extra at nights because the cold temperatures are is
0: usually at night. Exactly. Yeah. From night
1: until the morning is that maybe if we get a little bit of boost, a little umph yeah. to that that rumination or even if it's a calf, you know, just giving them a little bit extra calories there in that nighttime feeding seems to be a little bit more beneficial than vice versa than doing right. that in the, in the morning as the days are starting to heat up a little bit more even if it's a couple of degrees that's still less hey, That on makes
0: the sunshine makes a difference. Exactly. So, you know, it really seems like the real solution here is obviously observation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, be watching for it. It's not necessarily going to be this huge onset. It's going to kind of maybe creep in a little bit more. And um, the signs aren't as obvious as heat stress. Yep. And really, it's it's increasing okay. energy to help them. Exactly. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, and I've kind of alluded to it already, where microbial support can play a role in this, as we've talked about, you know, as we increase those feedings, we do run maybe a little risk of acidosis depending on if we stick to just the two feedings, for example, in the calves or, you know, with cows, a lot of times we're just feeding once a day and, you know, cows aren't smart enough to not necessarily (laughs) overeat at the beginning. So walk me through how microbials can help um, either with cold stress itself directly and, yep. and or, you know, how it can support as we increase these feedstuffs, maybe... Helping not to end up with acidosis or or yeah. other metabolic setbacks.
1: The main way the acidosis. So there's there's a couple of different things to consider here too. So um, if I just all of a sudden, and that's why I made the comment. I like to kind of incorporate these changes in the feeding patterns well ahead of time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if I was just going to go today and say, okay, it's it's colder today than it was in the last week. I'm going to go ahead and increase the feedings in these animals. I'm going to I'm going to just slug feed them a little bit more. Or I'm going to incorporate some grain into a—and that's one thing we do do in the beef world, too, oftentimes, is Mm -hmm. incorporate a little bit of grain, right? A little bit more potent, concentrated energy into those animals. That's where acidosis takes off, right? Right. Because the microbes—exactly. The microbes that are in the rumen take time to develop. And so Mm -hmm. when we change feed and we increase the amount of feed, it takes time for replication to occur of those microbes. And some microbes that produce a lot of the acids, the negative acids that cause rumen acidosis, they adapt much quicker, it's kind of a crafty yeah. way that, they can, that mm-hmm. they can do this. And so, you know, they'll take that extra feed and they'll, they'll run with it right away and start producing acid and cause acidosis to occur. Those other bacteria, the, the beneficial microbes that are naturally found in the animal, take a little bit longer for them mm-hmm. to actually start, you know, kind of waking up and um, doing what they need to do, which oftentimes is converting that acid into something more beneficial. So by incorporating things like direct-fed microbials, and that's, that's what we do at BioVet, is we get those good bacteria, those beneficial bacterial species in the system already and they're ready to go and so by supplementing those type of products into those animals now if i have to increase feed intakes i don't have to worry about necessarily those negative effects of that slug difference right. of that increase intake where that animal is not used to that in a calf if i'm going to go ahead and increase every every farmer has seen this where you increase the amount of of milk or milk replacer you give to that calf and they get a little bit of bloat
0: mm-hmm. and one thing
1: that happens is you know that abomasum in that neonatal calf has a limit to the size. Yeah, it's only so big. It. Exactly. So if you give a little bit more, there's always a possibility of some of that less than optimally digested feed getting into the intestine, and the bacteria that reside naturally in that intestine then now have a feed source as well, and so we see some bloat issues there. So if we can actually supplement those animals ahead of time with again the, bacter- the beneficial bacteria that don't cause the negative effects. One, there's an exclusion principle, right? There's mm-hmm. only so much space in the body. And right. so if we have good bacteria at excess and poor bacteria that are in a low low number, then they can out-exclude. They can outperform those. That's
0: our war again. We want exactly. to make sure we have the winning numbers. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yep. And, and then you also then have a controlled population of these Of these organisms the ones we know do the things we want them to do right so by again incorporating these uh, probiotic type products these direct fed microbials into their their rations well ahead of time um, then they're they're oftentimes able to um, you know accept these feed changes accept these ration changes or increases much better than an animal that is not under those and you even see this in a lot of the recommendations now i was just reading a couple reports prior to this over the last couple of weeks. And one of the recommendations is to add a feed additive to Mm -hmm. their diets. I mean, so it's not just a willy-nilly, hey, let's throw some some DFMs in there. That's actually stuff that that's good research behind it, that it actually will help keep those animals on feed.
0: Well, and again, we've talked about this too, that, you know, the microbes don't live forever. So we can't necessarily, you know, do a one-time DFM scenario and hope for the best. It's really something that has to be...
1: Continually applied, they, yes. they have short generations, so they do grow fairly quick. When I say that there's a, a lag mm-hmm. in the growth, we're talking about the lag of, you know, in certain situations, hours to days maybe, but they do grow quite quick, but then they don't last that long. So most of the bacteria that we work with are quite transient. You know, they need to be continually fed in order to get to the populations because that, uh, again, bypass protein is the name of the game in the rumen. Right. they need to die so yes. that the animal can use that protein from those microbes. So continual feeding of that is is the way that you accomplish.
0: Which again that. just helps keep the animal warm, helps yep. with that part. It's and it's it is a protein source. Yep. yep. Um. And you know, really along those lines too, by doing the DFMs, you know, again we're kind of kind of setting them up not to kind of get that ninety day post mm-hmm. slug that we've mm-hmm. kind of seen when we get into overfeeding, underfeeding a little bit with animals.
1: Yep. Exactly. I guess another thing, too, while we're talking about feed and how to drive those feed intakes, mm-hmm. too, we can't discount water, right? Yes. And, and, and water is feed, right? We consider water feed as far as the, the definition. From, oh, you know, it's how pretty critical. Those exactly. And so uh, we know that water intake will drive feed intake. So lack of water, animals will stop. You know, you think of the rumen, how much of that rumen is water? You're talking up 40 or 50 gallons mm-hmm. of rumen contents, and a lot of that is liquid. So if we don't maintain water those animals will oftentimes stop eating, period. And that becomes really problematic in cold environments to keep water available and to keep it from freezing, yes. right? So if um, obviously we have heaters and things like that that we can provide to them too. But if you think about it a little bit as well, if I'm providing ice-cold water to these animals that are already struggling with trying to thermoregulate, they have to heat the water. Up,
0: they sure do, and right? that takes a lot of energy. It takes a of ton energy. of energy.
1: Same thing goes with frozen feed, right? If they're eating mm-hmm. frozen feed, one, they oftentimes won't if there's you know ice balls in the feed or things like that. But if they do ingest that and the feed's cold, that's got to heat up as well. And so we want to pay particular attention to the water that we provide to those animals in, ca- in the calf world. There's no good reason if you're, let's just say you're you're feeding your milk, you have them on a grain starter, and you're going to give them water. We always recommend water. You should have it at all times, right? Yep. Obviously, that becomes problematic if it freezes. So when you Mm -hmm. actually administer that and first bring it out there, it's important that it's warm. The closer to body temperature that that water can be, the closer to 100 degrees, 101 degrees for these calves, the less energy they'll have to spend to heat that up. And oftentimes it's a little more palatable for them too. So one way that we kind of drive water intakes, it's another area of our business, is with electrolytes. And so by providing the electrolytes, that's maintaining hydration in those mm-hmm. animals. It not only helps hydrate, you know, the circulatory system and the cellular structures of the animals, but also drives increased water intake as well. Just like certain individuals, you know, if you, you drink some, some salty or, or sugary fluids, electrolytes, you're going to probably drink a little more water throughout the day too yes. to try to replenish everything that's that, that um, electrolyte is going into. So you know we have we have adult products like our like our gold light products and we have our calf products like our calf uh, base light and gold light that we definitely recommend it's it's a no brainer in the summer and right I say it's a no brainer we still are trying to get more individuals kind of on that bandwagon of hey you know when you're above a certain degree you, you probably should have electrolytes in your ration right. right? We also know that it's really important in the wintertime, too, and probably in the fall and spring. So, I mean, year-round electrolytes mm-hmm. is not necessarily something that we shy away
0: from. Well, dehydration is still very real in the wintertime with drier air, less yep. moisture, like you've alluded to, having to heat the water in the body. it's yep. It becomes, um, or even the slug feeding with calves. Yep. All those things can can quickly lead to some dehydration, well, which is just
1: even, bad news. Even the rest, you know, I mentioned early stages as increased heart rate and respiratory rate. And so, Thanks. in dry air, when you're breathing out at an increased rate, yeah. you will dehydrate. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of a, we call it an insensible loss. You can't necessarily measure that, but it makes sense. Everybody that's been out in a cold morning and see the steam. As right. And it's, it's, it's still
0: very real. It it's is. still very real. So, I mean, it's 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 out there. We know it exists. Parts of the country probably aren't dealing with cold stress, but there are a lot of um, admittedly in the defa- and dairy world. There's still a fair amount of people mm-hmm. that this is a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, keeping an eye on our livestock, making sure that we are supplementing energy, but making sure we're doing it smartly um, and direct fed Microbials can really help kind of play a role into making sure we're we're maximizing our use of energy so you know at the end of the day our favorite part of the podcast you know this is coming what's the elevator pitch what is our take home here and lessons we need to keep in mind as we move forward into you know right now at at the taping of this particular podcast we are Mm -hmm. really running into kind of the winter months here in the upper midwest so take us home. What do we need to know? What's top of mind as we talk yeah. cold stress?
1: So so the no-brainer here is that is that we can't control the weather. We right? cannot. But we can reasonably accommodate animals to adverse weather conditions. Yes. And so the biggest key for, uh, I would say, for the elevator pitch here for the cold stress is coming into the cold season prepared. And so mm-hmm. that means having these animals on a proper plane of nutrition. Again, an uh, uh, animal in good flesh that's in that good body condition score range has no problem being in the teens as long as they're dry and, and not exhibiting excessive stress. You had mentioned that, you know, even though we're, in, you know, broadcast in areas outside of maybe the upper Midwest where it's not quite as cold, a thin animal that's wet and has matted hair coats or a or a short hair coat, Still 60 suffering. degrees. 60 yeah. degrees is the lower critical threshold for those animals. And so most everywhere in the United States at a certain period of time during the wintertime will get lower than that. So mm-hmm. it's not something that we just deal with in the, in the, the white north here, right, with all the <laughs> snow and, and ice. But we do deal with it all over the, the United States and, and the world. And so the key is to get those animals on that plane of nutrition ahead of time. Again, that's right. where we get, you know, supplementing with direct fed microbials, trying to get those animals metabolizing to their fullest, defici- uh, the highest efficiency, getting those animals on a good plane of nutrition and uh, when we do need to intervene, intervene in a, in a I would say, a, a way that doesn't necessarily change the animal's routine too much, right? So right. we're not going to go yeah. ahead and change with abrupt feed changes. But slowly and gradually incorporate those, and also provide you know shelter for those animals as best as possible. Again, even something as much as keeping some wind off those animals is going to be a huge difference.
0: Well, you heard it here, folks. Um, cold stress—it's real, and it's not just for the super cold days. It's really can affect animals in the right circumstances at a variety of degrees. So, to learn more, as always bio-vet.com and stay tuned to our podcast as we dive deeper into um, some more areas that dr haas has some additional experience in as a microbiologist so looking forward to continuing our story here and learning more about animal nutrition and how microbials still matter thanks for joining us for microbials matter For more episodes and additional information, visit bio-vet.com.